Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 36. The Floor in the Plan. He was lying face down on the ground again. The smell of the forest filled his nostrils. He could feel the cold, hard ground beneath his cheek and the hinge of his glasses, which had been knocked sideways by the fall, cutting into his temple. I'm Caspar Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm John Green. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Welcome, John. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. We invited you to talk about the theme of hope because I heard you say once that it's for you one of the most important values in the world is to hold on to hope. And I vaguely hate hope. And so (laughs) we invited you on this theme. So I was like, maybe John can teach me to love hope. Yeah, well, there's definitely an element of hope sometimes that's really cheesy and kind of annoying Like when people tell you to hold on to hope when you're feeling despair, it's often, in my experience anyway, like supremely unhelpful, even if it's correct. Mm -hmm. So I, I think hope is the proper response to consciousness. But I also think that hearing that when I feel nihilistic despair only pisses me off. Yes. So much about hope pisses me off. But before I like bring my negativity to this beautiful space... Can you tell us a story about hope, please? Sure. So there's this Emily Dickinson poem 
where the last stanza starts out, and then a plank and reason broke, and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge. And that really is my experience of despair, of feeling like the floor drops out from under you and you just hit a world at every plunge. And the time in my life when this happened most dramatically was in my mid-20s. I was struggling with major depression, which I didn't fully understand at the time, but I was also just in a terrible place in my life, stuck professionally. This romantic relationship that I'd been in had just ended, and my life really started to fall apart because I have severe OCD. I lost the ability to eat a lot of foods. I had all of these obsessive worries around contamination and eating food. And so I was like reduced to just drinking Sprite as my major source of calories, which is not like an ideal nutrition strategy, obviously. And I had to quit my job. I had to move home, which was difficult. I felt like a failure. I felt like I had no purpose in the world and like I wasn't useful to anyone or anything and like I was a mere burden. And I was also just in terrible, terrible, overwhelming, ceaseless psychic pain. And I watched this movie called Harvey. Now, a lot of things happened at the same time, right? Like I was in intensive group therapy stuff and I was taking medication and my parents were taking care of me and I felt their love. So, so I don't want to like pin it all on this 1950 Jimmy Stewart movie. <laughs> but I watched this movie, Harvey, which is about a person named Elwood P. Dowd, who believes that his best friend is an invisible white rabbit who's six feet, three inches tall. It's based on a play by a woman named Mary Chase. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie and play. And... Watching this film, I realized that this character, Elwood P. Dowd, he's crazy. He's crazy like I, I was crazy, you know? And he doesn't contribute to society in the ways that our systems tend to value. He has a substance abuse problem. He doesn't work for money, but he's not useless. He's not irrelevant. He's not unimportant. His kindness, his generosity to other people matters. And the love that other people show him matters. It helps them and it helps him. There's a moment in the movie where he talks about a friend who is going to drive drunk and then Elwood calls him a cab because he thought he might need some conveyance, I think is the line. And that's an act of generosity, that can be an act of salvation, really. Watching that movie, I understood for the first time that my value as a person was not based on what I could contribute to the economy or whether or not I had a girlfriend or whatever else I was using to establish social value. The real cause for hope is consciousness itself, is the opportunity itself to be helpful to other people when and how you can. I have never felt quite as hopeless since watching Harvey as I did before. And it's a reminder to me too of the power of art, not just the power of making art, but also the power of consuming art thoughtfully 
and with care and intention, which of course is what y'all have been doing on this podcast. And so I wanted to tell that story because I know that I'm not alone in feeling vulnerable to hopelessness right now. And I know, I know, Vanessa, that there is no cause for existential hope, <laughs> but I believe that there is cause for hope nonetheless. I had such a similar experience, John. I also, in my mid-20s, got so depressed that I somehow had the strength to drive myself home from St. Louis to Los Angeles. And then in looking back, the way that I imagine it is that I like collapsed into my mother's arms, like, and now I no longer can do anything. And getting medicated took months and one of the medications made me worse. And then the psychiatrist said, oh, I actually shouldn't have taken on a new patient right now. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> anyway, but I found the right medication and my brother and I had bought Tom Petty tickets months prior to the worst of my depression. And he came to pick me up for the concert. And I was like, not only no, like I was screaming, crying, like you cannot make me go to this concert. It is physically painful for me to even contemplate it. And my older brother, who is like the gentlest, least confrontational person alive, was like, nope, this is not optional. Like, get in the car. We're going. And the concert just like over time became like less and less physically painful. I had what like really is the closest thing to a mystical experience I've ever had, which is American Girl is my favorite Tom Petty song. And he went the whole concert without playing it. And he did a first encore and didn't play it and a second encore and didn't play it. And he came out for a third encore and he said, you really want to hear it, don't you? And it felt like, he, right, like it felt like he was talking to me. And I was like, yes. And he played American Girl. It was just this incredible experience of art, feeling like it's talking right to you and pulling you out of despair. Yeah. To me, the essential lie of despair is that despair doesn't just tell you this moment is miserable, which is true. It also mm -hmm. tells you this lie that every moment from now on will also be miserable. Yeah. And what really makes despair unendurable is that lie, that promise that it will never get better that there will never be anything on the other side of this. The pain is real. The foreverness of it is not. Right. When I'm when I'm feeling hopeless, even though I know that intellectually, like it's almost impossible to remind myself of that. But if you have an American girl in your life, if you have a Harvey in your life, it can be a reminder that oh, I was pretty hopeless and it turned out that that wasn't final. That wasn't the total sum of all human experiences, the way that it, it, it feels to me when I feel hopeless. And that's exactly right. That I would say that's now how I use American Girl is like, like a cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. on myself of like, okay, put on this song and you will remember that it is possible to come out of this. Right. So now let's recap all of the despair that happens. <laughs> Casper, are you ready to go first? Yeah, but I'm only going to talk about the beautiful things that happen. <laughs> so you're going to talk about Luna and then stop talking? <laughs> Great. They're your 30 seconds, honey. You use them however you want. All right. Set me up. On your mark. Get set. Go. So Harry wakes up and he's suddenly wearing glasses again and he's hurting all over and he's like, I've got to pretend to be dead. And Voldemort clearly has fallen over or something because Death Eater is a little worried. And he sends over Narcissa in this horrible way. And like, she's like, is Draco alive? And he's like, yes. 
Yes. And then she's like, he's dead. And then Hagrid carries him um, up to the castle and everyone's like, under Voldemort's silence curse, but also kind of breaking it, which is interesting. And then Neville's like, Rah! and like cuts off Nagini's head. And then the battle ensues because all sorts of unexpected help comes and then they win and it's hooray. And he goes under the cloak again. Wow, I couldn't get through everything, but I got to Neville. Like the chapter itself, you really raced through the battle part, but spent a lot of time on the setup. (laughs) You know, I like to focus on what's essential. Yeah. All right, Vanessa. Three, two, one. Recap. So Hagrid carries Harry up to the castle and Harry is like pretending to be dead. And then um, all hell breaks loose in Voldemort. It turns out that Harry and Voldemort have to have this one off like fight where Harry is like, this is all the reasons that I'm going to win. And let me explain to you the way magic works. And (laughs) I did the same thing as my mom's spell and I protected everybody. And Draco's the real inheritor of the Elder Wand. And then Harry decides to break up the Three Hallows and all the headmasters applaud him. I couldn't even keep my derision out of my recap. I'm going to start to have a better attitude right now. I thought that was very good. There is a lot of complicated stuff about how magic works. For sure. (laughs) Um, John, will you please mention the gargoyle? Because I don't want to finish our recaps without the gargoyle. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Here we go. All right. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So the most important thing is that there's this like drunken gargoyle that is sort of maimed or injured and lets them into Dumbledore's room so that the headmasters can applaud Harry and his buds. But the other big thing that happens is that Luna Lovegood shows how empathetic she is and how good she is at taking care of Harry by understanding what he needs when no one else will, including Ginny. But for some reason, Ginny's definitely a better fit for him than Luna the end. <laughs> this is a whole new conversation opener. I am a hard Luna Lovegood and Harry Potter should end up together. I will. Lo- I love Ginny Weasley, but I just I have so much admiration for Luna Lovegood. Every moment she is in these books is a moment when I feel like we are having modeled for us how to care for others, including her making fun of herself. I think we can start there because Luna, I think when we meet her in book five, the fact that she gets mocked is what makes her hopeless and they're bullying her. They're stealing her shoes. Right. And like she does not know how to be, quote unquote, normal. She's loony love good. And here she is using her. I absolutely agree with you, John, like super power of empathy And exploiting what she knows people find ridiculous about her, which is that she, like, sees all these creatures. And I'm pretty sure, like, makes up a fake creature in this moment (laughs) and is like, oh, look, a blah, blah, blah. And she knows that everyone's going to believe that in her. And she uses it as a literal magic trick, right, to, like, make Harry invisible. Yeah. One of the things I really loved about this chapter was the way that we see so many of those characters using their superpowers. Neville Longbottom, mm. long bullied for being a tryhard, is the ultimate in trying hard and showing his courage and refusing to give in. I mean, he understands Voldemort's power probably more than anyone at that battle, and he is still willing to stand up to Voldemort. 
those characters using the very things that they got made fun of for earlier as their weapons, really, their their weapons to care for others, to try to, you know, make sure that good prevails is really powerful. And it's like the message that I hope any younger reader gets from these books, right? Because I think that middle school was definitely just a time of torture in my life. And that is the place in your life where you can't yet see that the things that people are making fun of you for are exactly the things that are going to make you an awesome adult. And I feel like we get to see all of those transitions in this chapter. I want to shout out two more characters that I feel really do that well. One is Hagrid and all of these magical creatures. We hear about Buckbeak coming back. We hear about Thestrals coming to fight. Like there's so much that I can read into those creatures returning and Hagrid's love and care for them. And even, and this is a small mention and you know, I'm team Slytherin. So I loved seeing Slughorn in there with all of these like families and friends of people at Hogwarts. He's someone who has kept a rich correspondence and lots of candied pineapples (laughs) being sent his way. But he has this really strong networking ability, which I think also contributes to the, to the kind of backup troops who arrive. So I love you pointing us to the the things that maybe people are made fun of end up being their their biggest contribution to this incredible final battle. That's really cool. I love the idea that networking, like your LinkedIn connections, (laughs) could be what saves you in a battle. (laughs) It's like, everyone, wait, I announced this on LinkedIn. Everything will be fine. But who's the one the centaurs listen to? It's Hagrid. And and it's because he shows that rawness of emotion. It's because he's willing to speak to them honestly, and that moves them. So it's his networking too, in a way, right? Like he's done a great job networking with all of these magical beasts. That's really interesting. Half magical beasts. I don't know. I don't know where the line is between beast and human. I don't want to, I don't know. I have no idea. That's interesting because part of me wondered whether it was actually the insults that the Death Eaters were hurling at them that tipped oh, like Bane and the other centaurs over the edge, that it was about right. th- their sense of, well, this is what's coming. I don't know. Probably both. Yeah, that's a good point. I am a relentless optimist. And so I see <laughs> they would only be moved by suffering and not by fear. But yeah. you're probably right. People are moved by fear on on the regular (laughs) (laughs) by people i mean me i vanessa (laughs) drives a significant portion of my decisions (laughs) so vanessa and john i don't usually come into a conversation with a theme with a grand theory but i think this chapter gives us two different definitions of hope or ideas of what hope might look like One is this like deus ex machina moment, this kind of sudden arrival of a whole backup army of magical creatures and friends and family that arrive just at the right time. And you can imagine telling a story of hope, which is that like, yes, everything is getting worse and worse and worse, but there's a magical technology that will save us, you know, just before every polar ice cap melts or whatever kind of analogy you want to think. But the other theory of hope that I think comes to us in the very final pages of this chapter, which I really believe in, is this idea of repair. Harry has the Elder Wand, and the final thing that he does with it is to repair his own wand, this less powerful, unremarkable wand, really, that he chooses to repair and then to kind of get rid of the Elder Wand. And there's something small and unglamorous and endlessly every day about that kind of repair, that hope for what he can become normal 
that really moved me this reading. And I, I wanted to hear from you, what is the size of hope? Is it big? Is it small? Does it come once every 10 years or is it there every day? Like which of these two hopes resonates with you? I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about hope that I hadn't quite been able to articulate before, but it speaks really deeply to me because I think the hope that I find and that I find the most comfort in is the small hope. It's the daily hope. It's the, it's the ways that we can in small ways repair ourselves and each other and the world to try to build better systems that serve more just ends. Mm. That kind of reparatory hope, or I don't know what the right word would be, speaks to me a lot more than like the big existential right on the cusp of the void uh, forever emerges. That hope has always seemed kind of like obviously constructed to me, the big hope has. But the small hope I see all the time every day in my life and in the lives of others. I mean, I'm going to shock you all right now and talk about the Holocaust, but <laughs> it was just the commemorative day of the liberation of Auschwitz. And I think that that was almost a deus ex machina hope moment, hmm. right? And at least that's how we talk about it now, right? Like mm -hmm. the Americans rolled in and like the Holocaust was over. And that was true for the couple thousand people who were still in Auschwitz. And then my grandparents who were all in Auschwitz, none of them were there. They had been death marched out. Hmm. And what scares me about hope is that we believe in the deus ex machina ones because those make for the great stories, yeah. right? It's like all you have to do is survive and then the army is going to come in. And that like I worry that stories about the big hope about Harry Potter mm. cause people to sacrifice too much in the small hope ways like Lupin and Tonks lost their lives because they had big hope in Harry. And it pays off like Harry was the right thing to have hope in and Auschwitz was liberated and all four of my grandparents survived. Right. Like, but I worry about all of the small H hope things we do in the in the name of the big H hopes mm. that are actually destructive or lead to people being exploited, sacrificing their lives, even though they have a young baby, et cetera. Yeah, no, I, th I, I think that's a really good point. It reminds me of this beautiful poem by Clint Hill Smith called When People Say We Have Made It Through Worse Before. And the first line is, all I hear is the wind slapping against the gravestones of those who did not make it, those who did not survive to see the confetti fall from the sky. Right. And I, I do think it's very important when we tell stories of hope that we acknowledge the reality of suffering. You're absolutely right, Vanessa. Like in this chapter, there's there's much more focus on the celebration than on the grief. Although I like the little moments where it's acknowledged that these things have to live alongside of each other in a moment like Absolutely. this. And I, and I like that Harry has to eventually get out of that room and be in a quieter place with the people he's closest to. And he's experiencing celebration, but he's also experiencing, you know, a profound sense of mourning. Yeah. No, I think this chapter does that well. I mean, even 
Bellatrix, of all people, starts naming the dead, right? She reminds us that Fred is dead as she's fighting Molly. We get this great line of, not my daughter, you bitch. And then we immediately get reminded that Molly has already lost a child. So I I think that the chapter beautifully holds that tension. I don't know. I'm just always really wary of survivors' stories and like want the stories of the gravestones. You're pointing us to think about which stories we don't hear when we look back. But I think another way of kind of undoing hope a little bit is by asking, well, what happens next? Because we have this wonderful sign at the end of the chapter, right? All the houses are mixed. After, interestingly, Voldemort's the one who's like, I'm disbanding the house system. I was like, well, we'll talk about that later. But but all, not only are the tables in different places, but everyone's intermingled. And it's not just wizards and witches. It's all sorts of magical creatures who, who are eating together. And it's this kind of the sign of the beloved community, if we read it generously, But what happens next, right? Who makes the food and how are they organizing the school system next year? And and I guess one way of of looking at hope critically is also to ask, and then what? Because it's not enough just to hold this promise. Then the sun rises and the real work begins in some way. So yeah, that's helpful, Vanessa, just to to hold these two elements of hope and I don't want to say realism, but like real challenge or sadness, like those two have to go together. Yeah, there, there's a Liberian proverb, no condition is permanent. And we have to remember that somebody's going to do the dishes. And there's every indication from the story that we read that the dishes are going to be done by the same people who've always done the dishes. And that's a real source of concern for me. If this is a triumphant celebration of a better day dawning, it doesn't seem like for the most vulnerable people, the day that's dawning is actually going to be that much better. Can I say one moment that it just occurred to me that I really love hope is hope instituted as a ritual. Mm. And we are coming up in the Jewish calendar on Purim. And one of the central stories of Purim is that as Jews, you are taught to not bow, right? Like you don't bow to false idols. It's, you know, the second commandment. And so if a king or someone tells you to bow, it's you can't bow because the only thing that you bow your head in front of is God. And Neville refuses to bow, Right. Voldemort says, bow to me. Mm. And Neville just stands there and is like, super not going to do that, Voldemort. And I, in that moment, was like, oh, my God, I would absolutely bow. Voldemort makes such a compelling argument. (laughs) He's like, we outnumber you. I will kill you and your families if you resist me. I'd be like, "Okay, now is the time. Right. Like I've tried, but now's the time to flip. And then I thought, oh, I think maybe my Judaism would stop me from bowing. I think this story that's thousands of years old about Jews don't bow would maybe keep my back straight and that that ritual would give me hope. Mm. And I think that we see that also with Harry, right? Like he has no idea. He's sort of praying with his eyes closed as he's laying on that ground and Voldemort sends someone to check if he's alive. I can imagine wanting to like try to surprise the person and stun them because he has no idea who's coming. And then it turns out it is the only person who will allow him to get out of this alive. I don't even think Hagrid would get him out of this alive. I think Hagrid wouldn't be strategic and would be like, he's alive, right? Whereas Narcissa (laughs) pulls this off. And so again, it just made me feel like as an atheist who has like a fraught relationship with my religion, it made me really want to explore commitment to rituals as a way to have 
hope in myself about the way that I will respond to things, that I will keep my eyes closed and just sort of pray that it's Narcissa that comes and that I will stay straight backed when the Pharaoh or, you know, whoever tells me to bow. I saw that in the final spells that Voldemort and Harry use as well, because they both turn to their kind Mm -hmm. of most used spell, right? For Harry, it's Expelliarmus. And for for Voldemort, it's Avada Kedavra, which ends up bouncing back on him and and, and killing him. But yeah, there's there's something about like what you practice, you become. And that's, that's so true for those two at the very end with their final spells with each other. We see that also with Harry's constant use of the shield charm, right? Yes. Under the invisibility cloak, he just keeps shielding people in this really beautiful way that, you know, like Seamus and Hannah Abbott Mm. are experiencing that as complete luck. They're like, oh, my gosh, divine intervention. That spell was coming for me. (laughs) And all of a sudden it didn't hit. And so their hope is getting rewarded in this way where there's actually this like very real person who's like attempting to sacrifice himself. And I think that there are a million times that I have felt lucky when really a lot of finely oiled machines in my favor have actually come to save me. Mm. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I use the review and refine feature and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Can we talk about Narcissa? Because I feel like It's really important to go back to that moment. You know, her hope 
is that Draco is alive and she is willing to stake everything on that hope. She's going to lie to Voldemort. She's going to keep Harry alive, who she thinks probably also wants to kill Draco. Like she, she is willing to do all sorts. And my question to you is, what is the pinch on Harry about after Harry tells her, yes, Draco is still alive? We hear that her nails kind of break his skin on his chest. Like she's she's hurting him. Is this an echo of an unbreakable vow like we saw at the beginning of book six? Is it is it a revenge kind of thing of like, if you're lying, I'm going to make you pay? Like her hope is so strong and yet she does this weird thing. I, I wondered what you thought about that moment. I mean, I, my, my answer is not going to be interesting, which is that I thought about how when I was in middle school, sometimes like when I was getting beat up or something, sometimes when somebody was was being like called back, they would like put in a last little little punch like I'm happy Draco's alive. Thanks for telling me that hmm. I'm not going to have Voldemort kill you. But here's a little <laughs> <laughs> to be clear to you cat lovers at home yeah i just made a I just made a cat a quad cat motion it was really implying that cats are vicious no no okay it's true actually i wasn't fl- i've only had one cat and he was vicious so i don't i only have what i know <laughs> i mean i think that there is a more generous way to read that which is just like she's relieved and like clutching mm. at mm. him I go so back and forth on the generosity of Narcissa in this moment. The arbitrariness with which she gets chosen, like, really trips me up. I also, like, don't understand the justification. I don't quite understand if she says Harry's alive and they kill him, won't they then go up to the castle and be able to get Draco? So then if it's not a strategic decision, then it is truly a... I want to know Draco's alive and I'm going to try to do what I can to help you survive, which I think it's the ultimate cowardice. It is. I want to make sure that no matter which side this falls on, no matter who wins, I'm going to be able to justify my actions and like a general distaste for violence. Like, I don't think that they're super into like watching people be tortured, but The fact that the Malfoys are standing there at the end during the feast and are like, do we belong here? I think that if the war had fallen the other way, they would have felt the exact same way. Like this just seems to me like strategic cowardice. I was so excited for this moment with Narcissa. I was like, yeah, Narcissa's going to come in and save Harry because she loves her son and feels for Lily. And then I read it and I was like, no, this is just like your run of the mill, like vaguely racist coward. Mm. Right. And trying to play the middle because you don't know which way it's going to break. And so it's really a strategy of trying to protect your power and your influence. Like it's the ultimate in not having a set of values. Right. And and maybe the generous way to read it is I fight to survive mm-hmm. and I do what I have to do to make sure that I survive and my family survives. But the yeah. cost to others of that worldview is so high, making the whole reason to be alive as the reason to be alive is to be alive is, I think, kind of like a, a, a cowardly ethical way out of the problem of meaning. 
I think that there is something beautiful about striving to survive. I just think that the Malfoys are striving to survive and hold on to their power. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you're just trying to survive, if you're saying the only thing that matters to me is that my child survives, I'm like fine with that. Right. Like that's a child's birthright is that your your mom will be Lily and like being willing to sacrifice the whole world for you. But they also they're going to go back to Malfoy Manor. They have played this so that they still get to be rich. And that the only reason they don't have a house off anymore is because Harry tricked them out of one. Right. Like they wanted the whole. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah. I, you know, as someone who has thought a lot about whether or not survival is enough and is something worthwhile in and of itself. I, you know, I, I've held a lot of concern about my grandparents being the Malfoys. I'm like, I don't know what they did to survive what they survived. Right. And I, I have no reason to believe that they did anything wrong other than be put in a terrible situation and be lucky, but it's a concern. And yet I also think that surviving is like a real act of hope. Because if you survive, you believe that the world can change, right? Mm. And I, I think survival is not everything. And choosing not to survive, I think, is like also really beautiful and about any number of other things and can be about hope. But I do think that if you're still alive, there's still hope. There's hope that things can be different, right? There's hope that Harvey will change you. There's hope mm. that the sound of Hagrid's voice will call you out from the forest, right? There's surviving means believing in the possibility of change. Mm. I And I think that's the hope I feel for the Malfoys. I'm like, okay, you survived, right? Now what? Yeah. Now's your chance. Yeah. Oh man, petition for a, a book where Draco Malfoy begins to interrogate his privilege in a deep, meaningful way and really changes. Like, just as like, this, this can't go on. The hoarding of resources. And I'm also over Slytherin. I don't understand how Slytherin survives this. And we know that it does. I don't understand how, like, six months from now, a kid is going to put on the freaking sorting hat and be like, Slytherin, yeah, I'm okay with that. What hope do we have for this house that was going to be Voldemort's Hogwarts? I think one of the best lines in this chapter, and maybe in all seven books, is... And let it be noted that Slytherin House played its part. <laughs> yes, let our contribution not be forgotten. And I, it's so great. It's like, yeah, I mean, yeah, played played your part. I get, I guess, in the sense that like every story needs a baddie. <laughs> yeah, like that is technically true. I just, I just love that moment. It's really, really funny, and it's even funny in context. Like you're sad reading it. And then you're like, oh, that's so real. <laughs> yeah. My, my sense is that the question you're asking will be answered in the epilogue because Harry answers it for himself, really by looking at the life of Severus Snape. And, and so I think, I think we're going to find the answer in, in Snape's memory. I appreciate that. And I love you bringing us Snape because I saw that that conversation between Voldemort and Harry, the moment where Harry is like, Snape was always on our side as a moment of giving hope to the other teachers. Mm. I can imagine McGonagall standing there and watching Harry fight Voldemort and be like, and now I'm going to have to watch my beloved student die again. Or like being Flitwick and being like, what? Right. And like moving a crowd to be like, oh my God, we might actually win this thing. It wasn't to me so much about 
insulting Voldemort as it was about like hyping up mm. and giving hope to the crowd that was watching in this like weird gladiatorial moment that I don't understand why everybody listens to Harry and doesn't get involved. What the heck? Why are you listening to him? Get involved. Well, I, you got to remember to the point of what we practice is what we become. These people have been told for a long time that prophecies are super real and there's not much we can do about them. And so if the prophecy said it's him or me, it's him or me. But I agree. If I were in that crowd, I would be like, oh, I feel like like 400 on one is going to be better than one on one. Right. I'm not a statistician, but like, let's let's just all let's all shoot a death curse from every direction and see which one hits. Like, we only have to get them once. Right. There's a great moment because I also wondered about that with Molly and Bellatrix. I was like, Molly is like, I'm going to be the one to kill her. And I'm like, why? Why? That's so dumb. I hate that. And then Harry at least is thinking about trying to kill Bellatrix and is like, there's no clear way for me to guarantee that I'll hit Bellatrix and not Molly. But that can't be true for every angle. I like really am not a scientist, but that's not how physics works. <laughs> yeah, well, it, and I, I admire Molly for kind of pushing everyone else away and saying, like, I don't want you at risk. But it seems to me that that actually puts them in a better position to like curse Bellatrix from an angle that she's not looking. Right. I would like a more of a, a, a breakdown of that battle scene in general. A diagram. Yes, a diagram. That's what I'm looking for. So, John, we're in the midst of a sacred imagination as our, our spiritual practice themes over these episodes. So I'm going to read you a passage from about the middle of the chapter. And as ever, I'll invite you and Vanessa, as much as you're comfortable, to, to close your eyes and to try and step into this story with uh, as many senses as you can muster. So to look out for what you can hear and feel, taste and touch and then I'll ask you to share what you experienced and perhaps which which character you found yourself as. So if you want to take a deep breath, everyone listening as well, close your eyes if you can safely do it and let yourself just step into this part of the story. Harry shut his eyes tight again. He knew that they were approaching the castle and strained his ears to distinguish above the gleeful voices of the Death Eaters and their tramping footsteps Signs of life from those within. Stop! The Death Eaters came to a halt. Harry heard them spreading out in a line facing the open front doors of the school. He could see, even through his closed lids, the reddish glow that meant light streamed upon him from the entrance hall. He waited. Any moment, the people for whom he had tried to die would see him lying apparently dead in Hagrid's arms. No! The scream was the more terrible because he had never expected or dreamed that Professor McGonagall could make such a sound. He heard another woman laughing nearby and knew that Bellatrix gloried in McGonagall's despair. He squinted again for a single second and saw the open doorway filling with people as the survivors of the battle came out onto the front steps to face their vanquishers and see the truth of Harry's death for themselves. 
He saw Voldemort standing a little in front of him, stroking Nagini's head with a single white finger. He closed his eyes again. No, no, Harry, Harry! Ron, Hermione and Ginny's voices were worse than McGonagall's. Harry wanted nothing more than to call back, yet he made himself lie silent. And their cries acted like a trigger. The crowd of survivors took up the cause, screaming and yelling abuse at the Death Eaters until, Silence! cried Voldemort. And there was a bang and a flash of bright light. And silence was forced upon them all. It is over. Set him down, Hagrid, at my feet, where he belongs. I'll invite you to open your eyes again. Voldemort is so gross. (laughs) I was going to say, I wonder what you experienced. Who did you find yourself as, first of all? I found myself as Hagrid, feeling the weight on my shoulder of this boy, you know, thinking about all the time that I've spent with him, all the times that I've carried him, the times I've picked him up, how it must feel to believe I'm picking him up for the last time. You mentioned the, the weight of Harry's body. Were there any other kind of sensual images that that came through this time yeah i was feeling a lot of smells so i i Mm. to vanessa's point about voldemort being gross i could almost smell the Mm. putrefying flesh of voldemort and the acrid smoke as they you know exit the kind of lush smells of the forest and come into this war zone Mm. how about you vanessa who did you find yourself as I was McGonagall because mm. I want to be her. And we believe that practicing makes you something. So I am McGonagall. <laughs> I just really believe she would have cried out like this if it was any of her students. It's not because Harry was a symbol. It's because this was like one of her, one of her Gryffindors. And you hear the outrage and it's like the grief process is beginning. You know, the like hustle of being rushed out of the castle to see what's going on and like trying to figure out where your eyes are supposed to land on this like new tableau and then finally figuring it out. And she's sort of a second ahead of everyone else, right? Like she's the first one who yells. So she's just this teacher, right? Who's like something in my classroom is amiss and I'm going to scan until I find it. And yeah, just that like mind reeling trying to understand, trying to protect the other kids, the like multitasking of the woman in charge. Yeah. And then there was this moment where I was Ginny and just like dumbstruck by it, right? Like Ginny's really interesting to me in this moment because we hear from McGonagall, Ron and Hermione all saying no. And Ginny's the one who says Harry. And I I do not want to read too much into people's grief and the, and the reactions, because I think it's so easy to create narratives out of something that's not true. But the thing that it echoed for me was I remember Stephanie Purcell pointing us to that single scream at the end of book two, Ginny. And here we have Ginny screaming, Harry. You know, I, I, I really hear what John is saying about Luna in many ways being a beautiful partner and Harry for Luna as well. Like Luna would be a beautiful partner for Harry. And I, I wonder to some extent that shared experience of having been so fully under Voldemort's power that Ginny and Harry are bound together by that, that, that there is something that binds them somehow that, that really came through for me in that, in that cry that she utters in this moment. I did also feel like I could 
see it from Ginny's perspective, those all at once moments when your life is going in one direction. And even though, of course, it's not an all in one moment, like there's been a, a series of battles. Obviously, they know the stakes are high, but there is often one moment where you realize you can't get back to before and you're never going to be able to get back to before. I just I, I think about this. I mean, I think we've all had those moments in our life where you get a phone call or, you know, somebody sits you down and you just immediately know that you can never get back to three seconds ago. The thing I felt with Jenny was like, no one will ever know how much mm. he meant to me. Mm. Like we were only actually together for a month, but we were everything to each other. And that feeling of like, but I'm not going to be able to claim him as mm -hmm. my longtime boyfriend, as my husband, as my right like this. He was mine and no one will ever understand that. That's something that really bugs me about the way adults talk about teenage relationships. Me too. Because adults say, oh, well, you know, it's not like you're going to get married. First off, you don't know that. Secondly, marriage also isn't final. You know, like no, <laughs> right. no, nothing, nothing's final in this world. But also... It's real. It's as real as anything else. The fe the feeling is, is I, I am now 43 years old. Like I have I've been in love with the same person for a very long time. But when I fell in love when I was younger, it was just as real as, as this. Yeah. Just yeah. as powerful. In some ways, because you've never experienced it before, it's more powerful because it's completely without precedent. Mm. Yeah. And therefore feels potentially irreproducible, right? Like this right. was it. A hundred percent. I mean, when Sean and I went to see Call Me By Your Name, we were both distraught because of that movie. In many ways, it's beautiful, it's touching, it's tender, it's sad. But the main thing that we left with was we will never feel that kind of intensity of love ever again. Because once it's hurt you, it's pretty much impossible, I would say, to love with that much abandon. At least I, I, I'm not a parent. And so maybe maybe that is replicated differently as, as a parent with a kid that you have. But the quality of love at the age that Elio is, right? He's like 17 or something in the movie. Actually, you, you do lose that as an adult. You get something different, I think. But there is something very sp special about that specific kind of love that I definitely see between Harry and Ginny. Yeah, I'm so fascinated by the fearlessness the unconditionality of love early in life. And it's not only romantic love. Like the love that I had for my roommate in high school mm. was as intense and deep and profound as any romantic love I've, I've ever experienced. And we were completely unabandoned about it. We, we, didn't make any bones about it. We didn't try to hide it from ourselves or from each other. We didn't try to protect ourselves because the thought that we needed to protect ourselves hadn't, you know, really come home to roost yet. And that's that moment for in this chapter for Ginny is yeah. realizing, oh, there is no protecting yourself from that loss. But after you experience it, you can't stop trying to, mm. or at least I can't. Mm. I still try find myself trying to protect myself against the possibility of irreparable loss. You can't, but I can't stop trying. 
Casper, thank you so much for choosing this beautiful passage and for doing your voices. It's all in the voices. Yeah, great voices. <laughs> your Voldemort was excellent and terrifying. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, friends. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Vanessa, what's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Folklore. What's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Evermore. Ooh, so close to being right, but wrong. Now, see, I was taking a completely different interpretation of our favorite albums because we're in the same era, Uh but we have different favorites. I think it's why we have such great conversations, because we have similar sympathies and tastes, but we there's enough difference to make it interesting. I don't know why it has to be about winning and losing. You're right, Matt. It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> Matt, I do feel like there are some listeners who just heard that and were like, I think that Matt and Vanessa are talking in a secret code, but the rest of you are Swifties. And for you, we have an incredible pilgrimage coming up with Margaret H. Wilson. I am also going, and your wife Colette Potts is also going, because you could try to keep us away from a Taylor Swift pilgrimage, but you would fail. This is going to be on Cape Cod at this beautiful place called Auto Camp. And so we are going to go to this beautiful landscape and talk both about folklore and Evermore because they are complimentary albums. And we're going to reflect on questions like, what does thinking about my life as a story allow me to see in a different way? Or do I have stories or memories that might be easier to share in a fictional framework? And what fables do I wish existed to guide me right now? So if you love close reading, if you love Taylor Swift, if you would love to go on a pilgrimage, you should come and look into this. Go to readingandwalkingwith.com to claim one of our very few remaining spots on this great trip today. That's readingandwalkingwith.com. Let's hear our voicemail this week, which comes from Phoebe. Hi, Vanessa and Casper. My name is Phoebe, and I live and I live in Seattle, Washington. I'm 11 years old, and I've been listening to your podcast since I was 8 years old. While I was listening to Chapter 21, Book 7, through the theme of dreams, I heard Vanessa say that dreams are opposite from one another. This made me think that the two different kinds of dreams, the dream you had at night and the dream that you have as an idea for something you want for the future, can be different yet still similar and have the same meaning. For example, in Martin Luther King Jr.'s most famous speech, I have a dream, he, I always wondered if he meant 
the dream he had at night while still meaning an idea of something he wanted for the future. Another example I had is you guys mentioned Luna's mural in this chapter, and that made me think that while this could be an idea of something Luna wants for the future, could it also be a dream that she may have had at night? Thank you, guys. I, I was wondering what you guys thought of this. Thank you. Bye. First off, I just want to say that is such a beautiful voicemail. And when I was 11, I never had such a thought. I, I do sometimes have utopian dreams. I don't know if y'all ever have utopian dreams, but I have dreams where like things are significantly better. Not just like people aren't wearing masks when they go to the movies, but where like there are flying cars and no poverty. The other dream that I have that's a utopian dream, and I don't know if y'all have ever had this one, is I often dream that I'm in my home and I'm walking around and I think, oh, I should go to the secret room. And then there's a, a door and there's a secret room. And I'm like, oh, thank God for this place. <laughs> I like <laughs> it so much here. <laughs> so much better than my regular house. I especially have that dream during COVID because I've spent so much more time in the house than ever before, where I'm just like, oh, how could I have forgotten about this amazing place where I get to be entirely by myself? Nobody's e-learning and nobody needs anything. I don't have to make lunches. It's just this wonderful room. Thank God. And then I wake up and I'm like, it's time to make breakfast. What I love, Phoebe, about this voicemail is I think the thing that's beautiful about dreams at night are that I think that that trains our brains to dream big. So regardless of whether or not Dr. King had a dream at night about his children, I think our, our dreams at night teach us to dream radically. And when we're awake, we are taught to not dream like that, to dream reasonably. You tell your parent that you want to be an artist and a caring parent with the best intentions in the world are going to ask you maybe, like, how are you going to make a living at that? But at night, nobody can stop you, right, from, from dreaming those other things. And so regardless of whether or not we are bringing our night dreams into the world, I think it's so important for us to bring the, like, ethic and mindset of our night dreams into the daytime, at least partially, right? Like it's something we do a lot. We have a quote unquote, no bad ideas brainstorm time whenever we're brainstorming a project at, with Casper, Ariana and I, and it's trying to create that space, that night dream space of like, you can say the wacky thing now. And I just think that we, we need to try to codify that, Phoebe. I think that that's exactly right. Otherwise, we're just going to keep doing the same things over and over again. I'm so glad, Vanessa, that you mentioned doing that as a group because I don't dream very much, or at least I don't ever remember my dreams. And so for me, the way often that kind of dreaming practice happens is with other people. And so I, I really love kind of stretching this practice of dreaming, not just in our own minds or in our own daydreams or night dreams, but it, but it's actually something that we can practice together. It's like, what if it was like this? Or how might it be when, or how could we create a world where, for me at least, that kind of seeing or feeling what the future might look like one day is really real when I, when I do it with other people. But thank you so much, Phoebe, for that fabulous, fabulous question. 
We're now going to take a moment to remember members of our community who have lost loved ones due to COVID. Erskine Harkey, who is in his 80s and was a grandpa, biological and otherwise to many. Jean Exline, who is 33 and a whirling dervish of giving. Jim, a great pizza maker. Penny Crux, 81, a beloved grandmother of seven. To Auntie Femida. And we have a message from a healthcare worker who says to all of my patients that I have lost, far too many to name. I was your nurse, I held your hand, and now may your spirit fly free, loved and mourned by a stranger. So, John and Casper, it's now time where we get to offer blessings to characters in the book. Um, Casper, who would you like to bless today? I'm going to bless Molly Weasley. She is taking off her cloak. She's just arrived and she steps into this battle with such ferocity and clarity and skill. I mean, she takes down Bellatrix in a way that no one has been able to. I just love that we see this fullness of who she is, right? We've seen her as a loving parent. We've seen her as a generous kind of mother figure to Harry as a a wise counsel in the order. But here we see her as a warrior and I, I just love it. (laughs) So I, I I guess anyone who, who can step into their full, the fullness of who they are. And maybe we only see glimpses of it once every seven years, but my God, is she a warrior? And I, I just admire and love her so much. So my blessing is for Molly. How about you, John? Who do you want to bless this this chapter? In news that will surprise no one, it's Luna Lovegood. Her immense empathy and her ability to understand both herself and the needs of the people around her is unmatched in these stories. And we've watched as she goes through difficult times and often gets treated as silly or irrelevant. And in this moment, she again asserts that one of the ways you can assert your personhood in this world is by acknowledging the personhood of others and imagining them complexly. And I just have a lot of admiration for her. So I offer my blessing to Luna. She is the priest of the books for sure. Yeah, for sure. Vanessa, how about you? Who would you like to bless in this chapter? I want to bless Ginny. I want to bless Ginny for this moment where Molly pushes her aside and is like, I've got this. I mean, obviously she, Molly does this to Hermione and Luna as well. This like trifecta of amazing young women. But I just can imagine the relief. There are moments even as an adult where I I like wish my mom could still mom me entirely. Be like, nope, this burden off of you onto me. And in fact, I I think a moment like that in my life is, you know, when I talked about at the beginning of the episode, when I showed up on my mom's doorsteps, so depressed, I was unable to take care of myself. And Jenny tries so hard to be brave, right? Like she snuck into this battle and she wants to be in the thick of it. And I just love watching her get treated like a child one more time. And it's like, it's not your job to fight this fight. Like you are still a kid. 
And so I feel like kids this year are really having to grow up in ways that they shouldn't have to. And so I just want to bless any parent out there who's letting their kid be a kid for a minute and any kid out there who's enjoying that and relishing that. It's a it's a great thing. Before we do the credits, John, I just want to say thank you so much for coming and doing what some people consider to be the last chapter of the series. I know the epilogue is contentious. (laughs) So, and really I want to tell everybody to go pre-order the Anthropocene reviewed book. I've had it pre-ordered for months. So you're going to have to get in line behind me, everyone, but go pre-order it right now. It's going to be amazing. I have no doubt. Thank you. And thank you for the gift of this podcast and your company and friendship. It means a lot to me. And this community is such an inspiration to me and in hard times, especially such a source of solace and consolation. So I feel really, really lucky to be here, but I also feel really lucky to get to listen to y'all. Thanks, John. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook Common Room. Join our local groups and come join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. And you can, as always, leave Casper a review on iTunes. Send us a voicemail and help us make our new podcast at patreon.com slash realquestionpod. Next week, we're reading the epilogue through the theme of love. We are Not Sorry Production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bowl, and we are distributed by Acast. Thanks to Phoebe for this week's voicemail, and as ever to Molly Baxter, Julia Augie, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Purcell, and everyone who sends in the names of their loved ones who have passed because of COVID. And a very, very special to our fabulous guest and friend, John Green. We'll be with you all again next week. Thanks, everyone. And most of the dinosaur books I read as a kid are not facts because it prominently included the brontosaurus. Oh, Vanessa. My favorite dinosaur. Is Bron- gone? Bron- yes. Brontosaurus is back. Brontosaurus is back? Is Pluto a planet again? No, 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 no. That's no, that's that's still a problem. But brontosaurus, they were like they like un, they were like brontosaurus is an apatosaurus, and then like three years ago they were like, nah, we were we were wrong. Brontosaurus is brontosaurus again. I can't believe I'm three years behind this important dinosaur news. <laughs> well, you don't have uh, a seven year old uh, boy in your life to like keep I you know. up to date on paleontology. I have an eight-year-old girl in my life, and I'm going to complain to her that she doesn't keep me up. She really, she should be doing a better job on that front.